Welcome to the Agile Coffee Podcast, proud to be part of the Agile Podcast Network, agilepodcastnetwork.com. My name is Vic Bonacci, the host of this Agile Coffee Podcast, where we run a lean coffee. And today for episode 74, we have one new voice. It's difficult to call Diana Larson a new voice because we all know her from, if not Lift Off, the book that she's done with Ainsley, uh, or her book with uh, Esther, which is uh, Agile Retrospectives. Perhaps you know her from the Agile Fluency Project, uh, the great work that she's been doing with James Shore and others. So I'm very thankful to have not only Diana, but also Chris Lakshmi and Colleen, my other great guests today. You can help support this show by either taking one of my classes, go to onlinescrumclass.com and find out more, or visiting patreon.com slash agilecoffee for the cost of a simple cup of joe once a month. Uh, you really help the show out. And uh, and if you upgrade your, your patronage, um, there are mugs and merch on their way. You can check out my website, agilecoffee.com. See the show notes. You'll see a picture of the wonderful mug that I've got right here in my hand right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a fresh brew of Agile Coffee. Welcome to the Agile Coffee Podcast, episode 74. My name is Vic Bonacci. Today, I am delighted and thrilled to be joined by four of my very best friends here in the in the online Agile space. Um, going around, I'm looking uh, clockwise. We've got Diana Larson. Diana of Portland is her Twitter handle. Hello, Diana. Hello, Vic. Hi, everybody. Colleen Kirtland. Hi, Colleen. Hi, everybody. Colleen is on Twitter at Purpose Creator. Chris Herney. Hi there, Chris. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Chris is on Twitter at Chris underscore Herney. And Lakshmi Ramaseshan. Hello, Lakshmi. Hi, everyone. And you, your Twitter handle is Lakshmi Ramases2. All of our contact information will be on the show notes, which is at agilecoffee.com slash episode 74. Um, most of us, I think all of us were at, um, at the most recent Agile SoCal that we had back in September. It's a few months back, but then I've seen a number of us in other, uh, I think I've seen just about everyone in another online, uh, workshop or forum or something in the last, uh, over the last couple of months. So, um, good to see you all again and looking forward to a, a good session here today. Um, our first topic we've got up here, Diana, this is yours. It says, every cloud has. <laughs> what new opportunities have you discovered in these pandemic times? You want to kick us off with that? Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, um, I am a firm believer in every system, every situation has upsides and downsides. Um, you know, I, I, when I talk, when I talk with leaders in organizations, they're always looking for the perfect solution. And I feel like it's my job to tell them there is no perfect solution. We're going to find the solution where you like the upsides the most and hate the downsides the least and see if we can figure that out. But what that tells me is that there are, there is an upside no matter what is happening. And uh, I think we're so familiar and we've talked so much about the downsides of COVID and the pandemic and all the other turbulence that's been going on this year. I'm just really curious about what 
are the opportunities? What are the upsides that people have been discovering um, as they've um, navigated through these past months or so um, in this time? I just love that question, Diana, because I have literally been talking to friends and colleagues about this whole situation that we're in that's all embroiled in COVID and politics and all these things and not to get political, but I think for me, one of the key upsides is this stark realization of differences and the opportunity to heal and understand, right? And how do you lean into the people that we most disagree with? Because it's so easy to get caught in our echo chambers. And I'm always thinking about for the for the person that I just just makes me pissed off. Mm-hmm. How can I understand and grow closer? And it is a big challenge, but I feel like the Agile coaching community is very much up for that challenge to truly, truly embrace diverse voices, even if actually kind of leaning into the conflict to create a better world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, with that, for me personally, um, this has been a real opportunity to reconnect with my uh, my intentions around how I treat my community members and uh, the folks that I had, you know, I, you get busy and I had lost track of some of that um, giving attention to what matters like black lives matter and and those kinds of things and it and i've i have really appreciated the push to get reconnected with those things in a in a more visceral way than i i had been lately you know i'd been moving more toward uh, offering services online over the years as i'm sure most of us have but this has been definitely a push into that a big time so mm-hmm. um not only have i updated a lot of the technology in and around the place that i work which is now my house um but that's also kind of opened the doors to imagining a new way of presenting my work whether it's coaching or training i'm more often the case i'm doing a lot of training um and so what tools am i going to be looking at now not for the tools sake but to accomplish a specific goal to open up a new channel of teaching so um so it's been a little bit trying at times especially in the early days but um but it certainly i think uh in the long run helped me uh shape my business of training online or coaching online uh, more than it would have if it was just normal times right Mm -hmm. i can say for um Pakiolan and you know in my current role at Pakiolan it's been it's been really interesting because in March when we suddenly pivoted to being remote um, I was struggling with a couple of things where um, teams were um, wanting different techniques available to them at their fingertips to run better retrospectives. Um, we had a scrum master at the time that was really facilitating the retrospectives within the teams, but we really wanted teams to own that and really make it their own. Um, and we were working on a physical, because we we're actually mostly co-located, um, which is really surprising in this distributed world, but um So we were working on a physical kind of kit for each of the teams. And then the next week we pivoted to being remote. So we 
quickly had to prepare something in Jamboard. And I actually leaned on a lot of your work, Diana, and Esther Derby's work. And I actually pulled out pulled out, you know, 10 or 12 techniques that would ring well with the team. And and then we were able to quickly create that for the teams and help them, you know, run with it. So it was interesting how when at the time when you have to really think about creative ways of providing a quick solution for the teams that's free of cost, that you can come up with great ideas. So (laughs) within a couple of days, we were able to put that together. Um, And the second experience that, you know, rings true to my heart, and I spoke about this at the Agile Open SoCal, is um, we were uh, doing, we do inceptions a lot for new initiatives at Pacquiolin, where we bring the teams together for a one or two day experience and kick off new work. Um, And again, I was, uh, you know, captured with this new way of doing inceptions. I was new to the inception process and uh, was focusing on creating this in-person experience because all of the teams are co-located. So we would take up this big conference room and prepare all these post-its and prepare a journey of how you go through the inception process. And uh, literally when we pivoted to being remote, we had an inception the next week. And again, I leaned on Jamboards and I said, well, let's put together something and it's going to be crappy, but, you know, we all have to give each other grace at this point and put together something and get this team off uh, and running. Right. And we iterated from there and now we have a a much more engaging experience and going back to tools uh, we now are using Miro, and I think uh, if it wasn't for this sudden push to become remote, I don't think I would have been challenged to find something that would be engaging for our teams, right? So, um, so those are the two things I can think of that you know I learned a lot from, and our teams are still learning from it every day. Don't you love the fact now that sticky notes don't get lost, and that <laughs> you know it's like. I mean, how many of us have ended up with like a pile of sticky notes that went off somewhere in the office and we're like, where did all the, what did that happen to all the retrospective notes? That was my backlog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a, uh, I've got a notebook from a previous client that I just stumbled upon the other day and I opened it and amidst all the writing was, you know, every like fifth page was sticky notes crammed in there. All <laughs> strewn across in no particular order. And I was like, oh yeah, I maybe I should have done something with these. <laughs> um, you know, for, for me, um, the opportunities I've had in this during the pandemic, definitely not as altruistic as Diana or Colleen, but it, at least on a maybe personal growth and personal satisfaction front. Um, I don't know. We, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, Vic, you, me, and Paul Moore. I'm sort of loosely toying with the idea of, planning my exit from the agile consulting space and maybe uh, re-entry into the development space where I started years and years ago. I've had a lot of opportunity, you know, working from home to um, do coding boot camps and, and uh, just sort of, you know, plural site classes, even revisiting some of my own code from 20 years ago. And uh, based on what I've learned from agility, seeing how amateurish my code was back then. And so, uh, you know, th- this is going to be a long progression and I'm not saying I'm, I'm quitting the agile consulting space, but I'm, I'm toying with the idea of, of going back to development. So I've had a lot of time to explore that and I've had fun doing it, right. Even if it doesn't, um, even if it doesn't ultimately end up 
as anything other than me playing around with code. It's been a lot of fun. So yeah, well, and that's interesting. You you mentioned revisiting, hmm. and and what Lakshmi said. Um, uh, over the past several years, uh, I haven't had as much opportunity to work with the stuff that Ainsley and I put in our liftoff book. But because through a you know weird the series of events, be, because of what has happened, I now have a, a client that I'm I'm just getting an engagement with, where um, what we're going to be doing is creating a, a team chartering and liftoff process that um, their thirty coaches can use across. Two, 240 teams or something like that and um and I, you know it's it's a great opportunity for me to completely rethink you know i mean i know that i'll still have purpose and alignment and context and i'll still be you know there's be certain elements there but i can think about them and look at them in an entirely new way mm-hmm. um and uh, and that's actually pretty exciting you, you yeah. know what's interesting about that, Diana, is, you know, for someone like you who's fairly prolific at creating content and, you know, offering <laughs> material and things like that, I had a conversation recently with, with Mike Cohn about this. And, you know, Mike Cohn has a bunch of books out there, old and new, that people buy and people use as reference material. And I forget exactly what we were talking about, but I, I brought something up and he said, you know, yeah, this is the way I wrote this in that book. It, with hindsight, I sure wish I had explained it much differently. Uh, does that is that something that resonates with you? Oh, that's the dirty secret of all authors. <laughs> <laughs> the minute you publish something, you see the thing you wish you'd written differently, and those just accumulate over time. And, and that's and that's <laughs> but, the double-edged yeah. sword: is is that's, you can hold yeah. on to it and make and wait for it to be perfect, but it's yeah. got to get it, it out there. Yeah, is, at some point it, you just have to put it out there because because the beautiful thing about that, and I people have heard me say this a lot, it's like you know I the, the rest perspective model. I Before that, I had a model of team communication that I shared with the world, the ch- agile chartering model, the agile fluency model, I mean, uh, five rules of accelerated learning. All these models that I've created, what I've discovered is you get them to a place where you feel like it's time to put them out into the world, and then they start teaching you back. Like, now I know Lakshmi's done some things with her inceptions online and I'm going to be able to like get in touch with her and learn some things back about how to help teams get started. And, and that it just always happens. And it's just, it's one of the really lovely things about, for me, about creating models is that, that it's a, it's a learning opportunity for me. If I'm willing to contribute it, it will start teaching me back. And And, what, um, and what better time than uh, during this um, COVID to reevaluate so many models, right? I mean, we're going through it on so many different levels because both what you said, Diana, as well as Chris, you know, re-exploring um, something that you left 20 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. In this time, I've almost felt that um, one of the, the things that has come out of working this way is it's a natural way in which layers are removed and we're all closer to the making, right? And so it, it just reminds me of some of the, the things um, that have come to mind as, as I've explored certain economic models that actually 
remove or separate the makers and the takers, so to speak. And and I think as we collapse some of that fluff in between, a lot of us may revert to being more makers, you know, and, and maybe that's going to be somewhat of a natural evolution because to lead in this space, I think this has pushed kind of traditional corporate leaders to really think, what is my role then, right? Because now we're all so much closer to the making and the teams we have to be right and it's mm-hmm. it's led to you know i think finally the thing that we've been observing all along is a potential outcome of agility is is the flattening of organizations which might actually lead into one of diana's topics later about <laughs> hierarchy <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to me because you know on that top like for example code right i i will i've i've gone back and revisited code i've written 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And similar with maybe posts or blogs I've authored as well, it, it, it kind of falls in two categories. I either look at things in the sense that I, I could have articulated that or expressed that differently, more effectively, or it's, I just fundamentally don't believe in that anymore. My, 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 my outlook has changed. I have that example with code that I revisit, right? Um, not to get too nerdy, but one of the one of the clean code principles is to obfuscate data and expose behaviors. And I looked at some code I'd written, and it's just I'm exposing data all over the place, right? And it's like I'm I'm, I'm not I'm doing the exact opposite. And so as you learn things in a different um, in a different space, you know, with agile consulting and, and and you know think agile values and principles and things, you can then go revisit other domains that you've worked in and have a new perspective on it. So that's been pretty interesting for me. Has anyone removed anything from their day-to-day or, or their their work habits? So for me, I'm, I kind of think of the agile principle of simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done or the amount of tools not used or whatever it is. Simplicity, the art of removing a long commute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, very good. Uh, listeners, let us know what has changed in your world. Uh, what new opportunities have arisen in your pandemic days? Use the hashtag on Twitter, tell Agile Coffee, and be part of the conversation. All right. Next up, we have a, uh, a topic from Lakshmi, building values and principles as a collaborative activity with teams. Yeah, so um, I was really inspired by this from a story, uh, a conversation that I had with a a team lead just yesterday Um, and have regular one-on-ones with uh, different team leads and just skip one-on-ones just to sense, you know, what's going on in the organization and how can I better support the organization um, in my role. And one of the things we did with uh, in Pakiolan earlier this year is um, we actually collaboratively worked with all of the teams to co-create values and principles for our engineering organization. Um, and it was it was daunting at first for me to think about how are we going to do this. And um, I was talking to our coach, who's no longer with the organization now, and she was like, "Well, just go into each team and you know ask them what." what they think our values should be. And I was like, well, that sounds easier said than done. (laughs) You know, every team is going to have different opinions. How do we bring that all together and create the, create this cohesiveness. So, um, so I went back and I was looking at, you know, books that I had on my shelf and I actually went to Lisa Adkins uh, coaching agile teams book 
um, and I found the the high performance tree metaphor and I said, okay, well, let me see if I can reuse this and repurpose this for this uh, activity um, and really use that high performance tree to say, well, okay, so what are going to be the fruits on our tree that we want to um, really grow, right? And what are the principles that we're going to Uh, talk about that we need to practice on a day-to-day basis to make sure our fruits are healthy so um so now the teams had something to to really visualize right so i drew up this big tree and this is a co-located team we had all these post-its everywhere and um and we were writing out the values and i didn't know that it had such an impact on the team because um one of the things that this team lead shared with me yesterday that was so powerful is I started to, he started to actually um, live some of the agile values by going through this exercise and and said, I'm sure this has had an impact on our engineering organization because I felt I was part of the process to create our values and principles for the whole organization. So I wanted to kind of share that experience. And it took me back to the basics because sometimes, just like you were saying, Diana, like when you hear the impact something has on someone and how they actually use that and how they bring that back into a conversation in the future really makes you reflect about the power we have of, you know, as coaches to influence our organizations. So I wanted to hear what, what have other organizations done to uh, really co-create those values and principles? Um, And does that, how does this sit with you? I love that you asked that question because um, I think uh, the bigger the group gets, the harder it is to do this. And, you know, the respect that we have for meeting a system where it's at is it's so contextual. Um, I'm at a place now, obviously, where it's it's a much bigger enterprise. And what I observe is that uh, we like to revert to the conventional kind of mission, vision initiatives, mission, vision, strategy initiatives. And it's so interesting because um, this notion of values emanating from the top is so prevalent, right? And so um, it's been very, I've been delicate about it because I want to respect those who are, are trying to do things in a way that's familiar, right? And this whole sort of like taxonomy that comes out of the mission um, vision strategy kind of approach is one thing, but what it tends to lead to is a very traditional, I'll say sort of a traditional project management mindset, right? Like everything has to come from the emanation down. And so um, it's been a series of conversations, but I've actually sort of at least gotten people to, to, to say, okay, this is good stuff. Um, let, let's, let's build on this. So what would happen if we did something like that's similar on, on an enterprise level to a working agreement? And they're all like, well, what is that? What is that? And so it's, it's a place where you really have to show people what it is that, um, that, that it could look like, right? And I think the struggle people have with that, and it goes back to this principles-based approach, right? Principle and value-based approaches leave much room for ambiguity, but in that ambiguity is where creativity lies. And so that is the struggle to get a lot of 
conventional, God bless their hearts, traditional leaders to trust that. It's like, no way could you possibly operate on these five principles. And I'm like, yes way you could. <laughs> you know, but I, I don't want to say it that way. But the point is that I think the struggle with some traditional organizations is that principle-based self-organization and management is just a concept that is not easily trusted. So that's been my experience. And so I think Pakulan um, is probably a smaller organization. It's wonderful because when we can co-create it and everybody can put their sticky notes on the fruits that they want to see, the leaders can then help kind of synthesize that mm -hmm. and bring it to a way that everybody understands. But it's not like we are the emanators of the values, which I think is just, it is a struggle. But I am learning so much about how to hear people, how to be empathetic, let the system arise, and then slowly start to seed these new ways. And then have the conversation, the tougher conversation about, let's unpack the, the, the struggle we're having with this ambiguity. And it is because they're, they're sort of saying, if you just give a team these values, it's all going to fall apart because they're going to want to know the details of how to do things. And I said, well, that's part of the growth journey, you know, so that's that's going to be a really tough one for this wonderfully, um, very humanistic, but very traditional organization that I'm at now. So I'd love to hear other people's thoughts because I am going through a lot of different ways to try to, to get this seated into uh, the current organization I'm in. One of the things that I've learned about systems is every system has simple rules, which basically are a form of principles, and they derive from the values. And, and every system has values, whether or not they have been made explicit. And if you have and if you don't make your if you don't stop and think about what values you want you often fall prey to values you don't want mm -hmm. and they may be just too vague i mean i think about all the all the corporate lobbies that i've ever walked into that has their list of five values and it's you know quality honesty you know teamwork you know whatever and nobody knows what what aspect of honesty really do, are we bone honest with our customers are we you know what do we mean by honest does this really mean transparency or does it really mean trust or what are we talking about when we talk about honesty right and so because the it just you know getting something to throw up on the wall that we all said one day we agreed on isn't the conversation that we need to have. It needs to be more more observable, more action-driven, and that's where the principles come in, mm -hmm. or we can actually use them as guidance uh, for, for behaviors, right? And so if instead of honesty, we say, you know, we tell each other what we think, you know, I really, I really, that tells us what we mean by honesty, and it gives me some guidance that if I'm holding something back in a meeting that people really need to hear, uh, that principle says I need to speak that out, mm -hmm. right? I can't, I can't, and that I will be supported in doing that. I mean, there's a psychological safety aspect to that. There's, all, you know, all these things. So, um, I mean, we, again, in the liftoff book, we talk about creating simple rules for teams, but that actually 
is is also a piece that has to do at, at the whole system level as well. And in the uh, Human Systems Dynamics Institute, they have some really great um, structures for how to how to how to do that work, how to come up with those, and and the idea that it's not as simple as just you know a few statements that we like, but we need a statement that is about who we are as a as an identity, and we need at least one statement that is about how we interact with each other, and we need at least one statement about what differences are important to us and how we manage differences, because uh, you know the whole system and the exchanges that happen within the system and the diff- how the, the patterns that difference make in our system is what creates our system, right? And so. Um, so we need to speak to each of those. And so, you know, a minimum of five values and probably a maximum of, I mean, a minimum of three values and a maximum of five to seven, because beyond that, we can't keep it in mind, right? We, then they're no longer top of mind when we have a list of 20, you know? Yeah, and I also so, think, yeah, I also, uh, to build on what you're saying, Diane, I, I also think that it's really interesting how, you know, when you create these principles, sometimes you're in a position where you have to um, penetrate different mental models. So I completely empathize with those people that want to start with mission, vision, strategy, because when they're asked to speak to the board of directors, that's their language, right? And yet, if we want to adopt Agile and do these other things, it's a different language. And so somehow we have to get that language into the lexicon. And yeah, one is going to have to probably displace another because they're quite different in their approach. But it's so hard. It's almost like there's a glass ceiling for <laughs> there's a glass ceiling for principle based uh, uh, self organization in many organ in many companies. Well, and and I just broke. Uh, I, I could tell Chris you have something you need to say here, so I just want to jump in real quick. Uh, you know, again, going back to the liftoff and the agile chartering. Mission, vision, strategy, or vision, mission, strategy is purpose, right? Simple rules or values and principles are alignment. So these do coexist, but they're looking at different aspects. And, you know, and then when we do chartering, we also then talk about context. How are things happening within our system? But we need all, all of those three lenses, to really have a whole view of the of where we're heading. And so I don't think one needs to displace the other, but they need to be co-equal. You know, they need to get equivalent respect, I think. Yeah. Sorry, Chris. No, no, no. That's fine. I, I, I just, Diane, I wanted to compliment you on the picture that you painted for me, because when you talk about walking into the lobby of a large corporation. <laughs> I've consulted with many of those large organizations and they do, they have their slogans, their, their values, their mission statements on the wall. Um, and quite often, once you get behind the, you know, behind closed doors, the activities, the culture, the behaviors, the things we do don't translate to those values. I, I think about one client in particular that I just finished up with, um, mission statement, very righteous, kind of a 
for the betterment of mankind type statement. And I believe that they were sincere when they wrote that statement. And I believe that they felt that they were doing that. But the culture within the organization was was quite toxic and it didn't really roll up to that value. And, I, and, and what you said, what it kind of crystallized it for me is they were missing that bridge between their their they're in the weeds activities and their values, which were those principles. They didn't have any principles, at least not articulated, right? And so they probably fell into behaviors and activities that were counterintuitive to the to their values. Right, right. Yeah, um, Ed. I think it's Ed Shine, uh, one of the one of the old time organization development gurus. Um, is either Ed or Ed Shine or Ed Lawler or one of those folks that talks right. It's a lot about culture. Talked about espoused values and lived values. Yeah. You know, and and you know, organizations will have it that that if those are not overlapping, if those are not in alignment. You know, the pro- then toxicity is just, it's just it's just a fertile ground for toxic just yeah. toxicity to to emerge. Um, so because it feels like a lie, right? Yeah. It feels like every day we go to work, we're living a lie because the wall says we value these things, but we know it's the bottom line that drives everything. If we're not making a dollar, nothing else matters. Yeah. Right. And if that were our value, if economic health was right up there as our value, then that would be fine. (laughs) But because we get it all mixed up, it it causes problems. Yeah. Something about the um, that bridge between activities and and values uh, reminds me of something I might have read in one of the uh, extreme programming books, too. And, And if you go back through the history of what we think of as agile and and you look at some of these authors, I think that there's probably other people who might come to that. In fact, it was regarding scrum. uh, It wasn't until Mike Beadle and Ken Schwaber wrote the book where they introduced the scrum values. And that always felt to me like an an add on. I'm not quite sure how that came about. Um, But I know that as a, as a, as an instructor, as a trainer who teaches scrum, I always feel a little bit of abrasion. Like I'm going to tell you what the five scrum values are and and it, again going back to what Lok, Lakshmi said you're you're not co-creating values there you're just kind of imposing hey, hey these are the values and they may have said these are the values that we observe on successful teams but still I love Lakshmi I love that you answered you asked this question you phrased it in such a way that kind of points to the value of co-creating it and seeing what emerges as a group. And, and Diana, thank you for saying, if you don't create values, you get what you get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's, You're going to have some. <laughs> what's interesting right. about Scrum is that, uh, and we, again, we talked about this yesterday. Scrum is by far the most popular foray into agility for any company. And therefore just by sheer volume, it is also the most misapplied, uh, you know, agile approach and you know you think about those scrum those scrum values and you think about kind of like the the cargo cultish implementation of scrum they quite often don't embody any of those values right well moving on then our next topic colleen this is yours uh the donut economics journey continues the quest for value and again i think a very similar 
transition. Transition is easy from the last topic to this one, but why yeah, don't you Yeah, well, Diana gave us the perfect springboard about how, how we assess value actually boing, so we just pop right over there. You know, um, I did talk quite a bit in the last podcast about Kate Rayworth's book, so I won't repeat that one, but I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll take another angle. So this is off of Donut Economics, but it's, it's a different thought leader that I think I might introduce. Um, brilliant economic. Uh, economist, uh, currently works in London. Her name is uh, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, and she has written a couple books. One is called The Entrepreneurial State, and the second one is the one I'm reading, which is called The Value of Everything. And I'm trying to find a way to actually distill this brilliant academic work into a way we can actually start to translate these values a little bit and, and create awareness in the product owner community about value. So. Long and short, uh, the value of everything has so many wonderful concepts in them. And I'll just go over just a couple because they're so important. And the first thing is um, the kind of systems we have today and the type of focus that Diana talked about on economic value was never predestined. You know, this was a explicit thing that we created as a society in the the U.S. and in, in, in the U.K. in our government policies and deregulation and other things, right? And so um, a a couple of interesting things that I think, um, well, both Rayworth and Mazzucato definitely agree on this, that the reason why, you know, economics has gained kind of this mathematical linear edge is because there was a point in history in the, um, the late 1900s where economics was seeking to validate itself out of the social sciences into the pure sciences. And so they, um, a lot of economists really sincerely wrote works to bridge um, Newtonian physics equations with economies. And we became very linear, whereas economic systems are highly complex, right? And, And when we talk about complexity, you know, this is something we can't predict, right? And so economies actually are so complex and so dynamic with multiple agents that we can't predict. So I think that part is really important and that goes to the systems thinking behind our whole community. But then we go into this really interesting piece about creating products that are more than functional. So today, if we look at the role of of product ownership, right, um, we, Often, oftentimes the roles in organizations are kind of backlog managers. And within these backlog management functions, it's very functional value, which there's nothing wrong with that. This button, this function, I need to do this, I need to do that. But you know, when we talk about transcending functional value, that's where it gets really complicated because you have, you know, it goes into the way in which we fund projects and organizations, it goes into money and it does come down to the bottom line, right? But all this economic value is very much tied into the way in which our whole economic system works, right? And something, I'll just give you a factoid to to ponder, and and I'll shut up, but um, really interesting to me was just Mazzucato's research and approach that really demonstrated the overgrowth of the financial sector and how it started to cannibalize on itself probably in the 70s and till today that caused a lot of these catastrophic uh, crashes that we saw in 2007 and continue to see because now we have, you know, when Adam Smith actually 
talked about value, it was very much tied to actual production, production of agriculture, production of things. But now, you know, we've created this whole financial sector that very slowly over time became noted as a productive sector within our gross domestic product. And this is exactly why we've actually expanded the financial sector, which is now starting to really cannibalize itself and attempting to create value that really may or may not exist, right? So this is really important. And um, I just think she does a brilliant job describing this history and describing even how venture capitalists came into being from the time Sand Hill opened in the 1970s and, and how it's created engines that basically, you know, we've all heard of the pump and dump sort of idea of startups and how innovation is cannibalizing us. So again, that bling word that every executive wants, innovation, it's creating like this social um, cannibalization of value because the idea is that venture capitalists will come in at the right moment and extract value, right? And so we're starting to now get into the space of creating truly circular economies that both take and give. All, all we do right now is take. So on the take, you start to degrade your environment, you start to create really, really unstable workforces and all these other things. So long story short, I think there's so much awesome room for us to inspire product owners somehow distill and simplify some of this because it's a lot. I mean, and only um, nerds like myself will read 300-page books written by economists. But um, I love it, and I really want to find a way to connect this into the way we think of product ownership and really change it from, I think I'm going to go and, and apply and tell the Scrum Alliance, can we change it to value champion? The, the whole role should just be changed to value champion. That would help. And and really get our community to think around this because this has so much transformative power. And so I'm just like gung-ho every day thinking about this and how to do this and connecting with people who want to do this. So I'll keep you posted. I'm just totally invigorated. <laughs> well, it's interesting, Colleen, because uh, I had a, a topic later that we may or probably won't get to, but uh, about hierarchies and how – and and I've been thinking a lot about hierarchies of value and how, you know, capitalism, for instance, is uh, it's just one among many possible hierarchies. And but it is one that is built on the value of capital, of money, of, of, of those things. And and it's why people at the top of the organization Right. If what we're asking for is money, then we replicate that by the people at the top of the organization get the most money. Right. And that's just go. I mean, like you talked about, just going out of control at this point. Right. And uh, poor people like Dan Price trying to pull it back and saying, yeah, maybe the CEO should only get three times the median salary of, you know, um, not a hundred times. Right. Um, so th those kinds of things are going on, but it makes me think also then of um, the potlatch, what I understand of the Northwest native potlatch culture, which was a gift economy. And it's very similar to what we have in the sciences, where the people who are contributing the most new ideas in science have the highest status. 
based on the fact that they are contributing their ideas. And in the in the old potlatch days, the person who could give away the most, who who you know had the skill of being a good hunter and 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 that enabled them to give more back to the community, those were the folks with the highest status and the, they were the hierarchically the ones that we turned to the most often and and thought of as leaders and and there are very there are lots of different um i i, I have uh i have the theory of everything on on my shelf and so i'm, I'm really looking forward now to grabbing it and i just sort of looked through it real quick and had something else on my mind so now i'm going to put it in my stack to look at along with the things I'm looking at around hierarchy, because I think there's some real synergy there in terms of, of that. Yeah. Well, I, I love that potlatch analogy. I'll have to learn more about that. So thank you, Diana, for introducing it. But it does remind me of, um, you know, um, the education I've received through a lot of these brilliant economists. And, um, you know, I've, I've never actually read Das Kapital, but one of the key components of Marxism is that the workers own the means of production. Or when you separate the means of production from the actual things produced, you know, and, and say like um, owners are separated from workers and the owners own the means of production, that actually puts the workers at a big disadvantage. And I was thinking to myself in this really strangely polarized society and sort of this the, 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 the simplistic dialogue we have on capitalism versus socialism, we really have to be careful how we introduce these ideas because it can be so inflammatory, you know, when you even say something that Marx might have mentioned that's quite logical but is more complex than just on the surface of being a socialist or whatever, right? So um, it's really interesting, but I think if we can somehow introduce these complex ideas into our society in gentle ways that get people to think, to, to unfold these more nuanced things, we'll be in a better place. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to put something in the chat um, so that you can, you can do it. But a number of years ago, um, Brian Merrick came up. He, he, he was tired of the way the word agile was being misused. And he came up with a new term that he said no one will misuse this term, but it describes more completely what he thought of as as really agile. And when you said that workers own the means of production, it reminded me of that. Artisanal retrofuturism crossed with team scale anarcho-syndicalism. And anar the anarcho-syndicalists were an actual movement in the early 1900s that were about workers owning the means of production. So anarchy, you know, less governance, and the syndicalism was the corporate uh, corporate part and so you know less less governed corporate part and then artisanal is the is the creative part of software development and retrofuturism is kind of the you know why don't we all have our jetpacks yet <laughs> and so so um he wrote a he wrote a uh uh, an article about it in uh, that was published in InfoQ, and I think there are a number of conference uh, presentations he did for a period of time about it. So if if you want to look more into that, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to hear him talk about it because it's very much along, you know, why isn't Agile doing more along these lines? 
And, I love uh, I love that terminology though. That's yeah. that, what was that narco? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Artisanal retrofuturism crossed with team scale anarcho syndicalism. I, I was going to say that is a Saturday Night Live episode in the making right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So links to any uh, anything that we mention here today, uh, listeners, are in the show notes. AgileCoffee.com yeah. episode seventy four. It was interesting when uh, Diana was talking about the, the idea of the gift economy and the example of someone like a hunter who provides food and, and nourishment to, to the community. It immediately made me think of the inequities in our own economies, right? Like if you think about uh, a teacher and how a teacher is thought of, respected, and even compensated compared to, let's say, a baseball player. And, and I'm not saying a baseball player doesn't deliver any value. They entertain yeah. people. You know, they, they they provide a nice, perhaps, distraction from the, you know, mm-hmm. grind of everyday life. But still, there's a definite inequity there, right? And and there's all sorts of examples of that in, in, our, in our society. So I thought right. that was interesting. And, and I'll just close it by building on um, your topic, to say that Mariana Mazzucato describes what you just described, Chris, as not understanding the difference between value and price. So in our economy, anything that fetches a high price equals value. And that's the, the fundamental shift that uh, will be difficult, but I think we need to take that journey. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Thank you all for that great conversation. Um, we're going to move on to... Uh, Diana, this is your topic also about virtual coaches, distanced coaching. What's working for us? Um, yeah, uh, they just the, the you know, it's one thing to do training. You you know, you come in, you have a structure. You know, I mean, there's a lot of the work that we do that eases very easily into um, into the online world, right? Coaching, coaching teams, helping, you know, consulting with organizations through their change journey. Um, you know, there's there's so much relationship building needed there. So much, be, you know, becoming a trusted advisor. So much um, uh, ineffableness to it. You know, people aren't going to walk away can you demonstrate these skills or can you not demonstrate these skills, right? Necessarily. And um, although I guess suppose if you're coaching toward technical skills, maybe that is a little clearer. But for a lot of us who are coaching teams on how to collaborate more and and where before we would have sat them in a circle and we would, you know, I mean, we would have set up a collaborative environment Zoom, for all its wonderful ability to connect us with people across time and distance, um, it, it, it isn't all that collaborative. I mean, you only get the discussion is really your your only channel here. And um, and so people slice and dice discussions differently. We are using breakout rooms and we're using different things. But... Uh, but I, so I'm really wondering how are people sort of keeping their a coaching game going when 
when everything has to be electronically mediated. And I'll, I'll give you one example, and, and I'd love to hear some other ones. Uh, I was with a group of people, professional people, who were talking about um, just the, the, the tactileness is no longer there. You can't just even reach over and touch someone's hand. Or, or I mean, one thing I've learned is to turn off my self view because it dawned on me when I sit in a conference room with real people, I never see myself. And that seeing myself was incredibly distracting on these calls. And so if they put me in a tiny little thumbnail down in the corner, I can kind of ignore it. But if I'm equally sized with everybody else in the gallery, it's extraordinarily. So I've, I've learned to, to hide self view for that. And that actually makes the online experience much less stressful for me. But anyway, so we were exchanging some of these ideas for those kinds of things. And, and this person said, you know, on our team, um, it's not that we were huge huggers or anything, but, you know, we did, we did exchange um, how we were feeling about what was going on that day. And we did, you know, we created psychological safety with some of those kinds of things. And so she said, so now we all have um, stuffies, stuffed animals, soft toys, uh, big pillows, whatever, in our office space. And at the end of every meeting, we we hug each other goodbye. <laughs> you right? got your stuffy there, yeah. And so, yeah, so I just happened to already have this guy, and so he, he now lives in my office, right? Because there's something about the tactileness that we just can't get otherwise. And, and when I do this, people that I'm mentoring or coaching, something in them shifts. You know, we, we move to a deeper level for the most part, even if it's just laughter. It's, oh, isn't that silly? Well, that's okay. I'm okay with this being silly, yeah. right? But it takes the relationship to a different place. So I'm looking, I mean, so that's just, those are just a couple things. I don't look at myself, I turn off, I hide self-view, and I, and I have some things like this that I can, um, can, can use when I'm talking to people. And I'm not doing, like, life coaching. I'm doing professional mentorship and coaching, but it works even, the, it works there. So that's, yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm just looking for who's collecting these ideas for how we can turn this online environment into something that is more personalized. I mean, just the fact that you are all in exactly the same size square and they're all rectangles and you don't get to decide what shape you're sitting in. To be a personal expression. I mean, you know, it. it, it anyway, I mean, I can talk about the limits of this thought forever. I mean, I, I but, gonna... and I'm aware that it has a lot of benefits as well. I was talking with a friend in Munich just a little while before we got on this call. Um, I was going to offer one one word, and I actually there's an agile fluency story in this. It's oh, called right. pro, our, our proprioception, right? It's really important, and we lose our proprioception in this kind of um, 
uh, arrangement. And so I literally, with COVID, have done everything from playing my ukulele more uh, with, on, 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 online with the teams to uh, dancing and moving. And, and so the, the story really quick with, with Agile Fluency is when I was, um, uh, for those of you who don't know Agile Fluency, uh, if you go through the training, there's a point at which the facilitator asks you to do a fluency pitch. What would your fluency pitch be, right? And mine, of course, was on dancing. So, and Michael Tardif was, um, <laughs> he was in, he, I guess he was my, my partner and I pitched him this whole thing about um, if you, um, if your objective is to do a wedding dance, you don't need to be Barishnikov, right? So you really only need to get to the wedding dance part of it. So I did like this waltz, like just to do the wedding dance, um, papa, um, papa. And he was like, he was laughing. But you know, those are the moments where seriously, I think I just need like the proprioception and to, to feel space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed people talking a lot more about somatics. So, um, and and I understand what that is, but I'd love to hear more about how people are applying somatics in the online space for coaching and mentoring kinds of purposes. Yeah, I don't was I don't remember how long ago. Maybe Vic, you remember somebody did a presentation at Agile SoCal about establishing connection points with people Mm -hmm. and i think an example they used was oh my son plays little league baseball and your son plays little things like that right Mm -hmm. so what what i've been uh conscious of and and trying to really uh you know amplify that is you know in zoom calls uh is establishing connection points with people Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think those estab- establishing those connection points when we're all together in a building or a room, it happens a lot more organically. So in a sense, I, I feel it's kind of forced, but I still feel like I'm creating some some of the value of, of, you know, establishing these connection points, deriving empathy for one another. You know, we share a similar experiences or, or likes and dislikes and things. The thing that I'm I'm concerned about and I noticed this with myself is I feel as though I'm consuming a lot more time, people's time with small talk when we could be collaborating on work. Um, so I, I'm trying to balance that and I'm trying to feel my way through it. I'm trying not to turn 15 minute daily scrums into 30 minute, 45 minute conversations, things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a balance act and I'm still experimenting with things. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, that's interesting, Chris, because I, I think that's a I, I think you may be falling prey to a false choice. I think if we don't do some of these things, mm-hmm. jumping into the work is not going to get us as far as jumping into the work used to get us. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and the the idea i mean i've i've always been a big proponent of the 5 to 10 minute daily stand up meeting where everybody comes they know what the questions are going to be they just they speak it out to the group and we all go on our merry way right but i'll bet be, since we are needing to be mediated we that expectation is not reasonable if we're not a co-located team yeah. We need more connection time in order to get into the work each day. We we aren't going to pick up cues where, you know, m- my kid brings in a little trophy because their their team 
sports their sportsing team uh, won over the weekend and puts it on their desk, we have no way of noticing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if we don't make space to actually have that articulated, yeah. We we we've lost that whole dimension of 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 those those um oh what are they called in um un, unobtrusive measures. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't we don't get any of those cues anymore. And um yeah, so I, I've been thinking about that a lot too. It's like our our ideas about oh we should use time in exactly the same way that we used time before, and so everybody's you know still scheduling meetings for an hour or a half hour, when what we really need is like forty five or fifty minute meetings because we need a break in between and we need you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know uh, things that would would just normally happen otherwise don't happen here. No. And, and, yeah. and you know, uh, on that, what I what yeah. I've been thinking a lot about is I think back to when we were all in the same building. And yeah. for example, a team meeting walks over to a room that's being yeah. used, and we have six or seven minutes to just kind of meander outside the room and, and, and engage in small talk and establish those talking points. Right. Yeah. And, and to your point, then we can go into that meeting and hit the ground running and, and jump into the work. Right. right. We, don't, we don't have that. So, so yeah, I've been trying to do that and I, I appreciate the point, right? Because I've been feeling guilty about doing that and intruding upon the team's right. time, but perhaps, you know, breaking up the time, giving breaks and, and, still embracing that you know the more humanistic aspect of, of being on a team yeah. uh, is I good. really like that because I think I think it's really important to figure out what the team needs and every team is different um, some teams have a lot of extroverts and they need that time to talk right and and I'm such a people person I I, ha- I can't just get into to something without knowing how was your day, you know, how was your weekend? What did you do? Because it's important to know how are you showing up today? Because yeah. if you're not, if you're not in a good place, you're probably not going to engage in a way that is meaningful to you or to the rest of the team. So, so I think, I, I think it's a really good thing for us to all think about to see how can we think about things differently now that we're in this virtual environment. I know some of my teams are trying like personal check-ins for 30 seconds or a minute um, on Mondays because you don't, there's so much that is going on in our lives nowadays that you don't know what's happened over the weekend. You know, maybe their family member that's across overseas is not feeling well. They're feeling heartache because they can't travel because of COVID. You just don't know what the situation is. And um, it's important to check in and make sure on a personal human level that you know what's going on before getting into the work. Um, and the other thing is about workshops. And I, I've been kind of thinking a lot about this with this virtual inception <laughs> experience. And it's challenging to think about the fact that there's the whole team of, you know, 10 to 15 people are going to be in a two or three day inception. Gosh, I mean, we're all so Zoom fatigued and it's important to create that experience where 
the team feels like they want to participate. (laughs) So taking a lot of pauses and doing fun check-in activities in the middle of the inception and distracting people and talking about something funny, like I'm constantly challenged by trying to figure out how do I make this more innovative and how do I change things up so I can, you know, get some laughs. And um, I think I was listening to one of Paul's Paul Tevis's talks the other day and and he was like you need to design for that space because if you don't have that space in your workshop you're going to rush something and you know yeah. compromise an experience that you probably don't want to compromise Thank you for bringing up Paul Tevis. I was on the tip yeah. of my tongue. I wanted to say I've just re-listened to uh, episode 66 where it was just Paul and I, and he was talking exactly about that. So I won't go on there. But the one, um, the two quick points I wanted to say, one is a- as a coach, um, part of your role is to like do the Gemba. And, and again, as we've said, we're not really in that position to do it. And uh, and I'm not coaching these days, um, so I can't really offer you like what's working for me in, in that regard. But I was um, <laughs> just this morning, I was with, um, I'm in Esther Derby's um, Change by Attraction class. And just this week, we were talking about what are the rapport maps? How can we talk about an influence map and relationships in our office and finding that mutual purpose? And despite it being... Um, everything's virtual now. Uh, there's still opportunities where you can. You just have to spend that extra time, be much more intentional about it. Yeah. yeah. Do we well, have time for one last topic? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. Did you want to add something else before we move on? Just real, I'll make it real quick. I, I forget who brought it, but somebody said that we're now missing that tactileness, right? And that's something that I've been aware of and I, I'm concerned about, right? And I, I think what I've noticed from time to time even in myself is losing that tactileness. I find myself becoming self-conscious on Zoom calls about, am I pontificating now? Am I just talking and, and filling the meeting with a volume of words that's not really moving the needle for anyone? Right. Um, so that's just, I just wanted to remark that that resonates with me, that lack of, of you know, physical presence and tactileness. Yeah. yeah, I love the stuffed animal idea. Also, that reminded me of a um, uh, another coach. Um, Roger Brown walks around with a a puppet or a stuffed animal yeah. during his coaching time too, yeah. because sometimes it's easier for people to talk to the puppet <laughs> yes. rather than talking to to him or another coach. Yeah. So, um, last topic, Diana: questions exploring agile fluency. Right. I love it well, because we already started talking a little bit about it. <laughs> we started talking a little bit about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, pretty much everywhere I go, people know now that my role has shifted and I'm now co-founder of this startup, uh, Agile Fluency Project. And uh, as as Colleen referenced, um, what we do is teach people to use the suite of Agile Fluency model-related materials and then license folks to have access to everything we've created so that they can um, incorporate that into their coaching practices. And, um, and And so I get asked to talk about 
the model a lot in a lot of different places, and um, and I love doing it. Um, I I think it's um, just in all humility. I think it's a, a coming into its power uh, that a lot of folks haven't recognized yet, and I've been getting feedback about that. And so um, I just like to make space uh, for people who've who've um, maybe just tangentially encountered the model or or heard from someone about that oh there's this licensing thing you can do over here i just like to make some space for people to ask any questions that they have about that while we're here and now <laughs> and it's easy for me to answer them and because um, i don't i you know I, I I want I want to get the word out and I don't want to leave people wondering well what the heck is this so so I've been curious about um, I've read a lot about the agile fluency model and I'm a huge fan and one of these days I want to take a class to be a facilitator uh, and to bring that into our organization but I heard a lot of great things about the game. Um, yes. Would you be able to shed some light on that? Oh yes, the game. Uh, um, sadly, the game is a thing that you need to sit around a table with other people to play. And so, while we have great hopes for the game down the road, <laughs> right now it's sort of sitting in a pause place. Um, and a lot of folks have asked us about putting it online or in a online format, and we're struggling with that because it again, what we've just been talking about, it is people sitting around the table having the opportunity to talk to each other about choices that they're making in the game and so on that makes it so powerful. And in all the places where we've investigated how people have taken board games and put them online, none of them have that necessary quality and um, that we feel is so important for the game. So we're just, um, it, you know, it's day, it's day in the sun will come again. Uh, we will have workshops on how to facilitate the game again. Um, that's definitely in our future, but it depends a lot on what else is going on. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for ourselves, too. So, it's, yeah. So, agilefluency.org is where people can go to find out most of the information here. I'm just wondering if there's other uh, yeah. avenues for finding out more information. Or is that um, well, that is, that's that's Agile Fluency Central. Um, that's where you find out about our workshops about, you know, how to, how to become a licensed facilitator of our stuff. Um and uh, and we also have a blog there. It's got all different kinds of information. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I like to blend my models. So one of the things it has there is three posts on how the focus of retrospective changes as you move through the fluency zones. Um, so there's, you know, lots of different kinds of good information there. And there's also, if you go to the contact, uh, in addition, and an ebook, a downloadable ebook that makes the model article easy to read on mobile devices. Um, if you have any questions um, or, you know, would like access to something or whatever, um, there is a contact us place you can go to that has a little, a little, you know, 
essay box where you can write in whatever free form whatever question you want to write in and we get back to everyone within about a day or two um, and then you can also sign up for our we have a monthly newsletter that gives links to interesting articles that um, are interesting to people who are interested in agile fluency and interesting to people who are interested in becoming better coaches. So we we provide um, links to those things. So so all of that stuff is available one way and another at the at agilefluency.org. Uh, I have a question, Diana. Um, I'm sure. just now reading through the sort of intro you have where it's talking about team. Uh, focusing fluency, delivering fluency, optimizing fluency. Um, and, and this also ties into a conversation. I don't know if you call it or not, but we, you were uh, several of us, but you were involved in during uh, Agile Open. Um, uh, just a, a, a preface to that, right? I'm, I'm, a company I'm consulting with right now, I recently had a leader come to me and I was, I was very pleased with this. He came to me and he said, you know, Chris, I, I want some, I want to have some discussions. I want to have some dialogue with you in a leadership role. I, I want to be in the boat rowing. I don't just want to sit back and, and give the approval and write the check. And so my, my question is, you know, from this agile fluency model perspective, how does that fit? How does this fit in with leadership, especially in a large enterprise trying to, you know, take this, this change journey? Right. Well, so the Agile Fluency model is a model, the the zones describe team behaviors, mm-hmm. uh, high-performing team behaviors that looking through different lenses. And what we talk about with leaders when we're talking through the model is teams can't always get there by themselves. They need an enabling environment, and that means they need investment from the rest of the organization, particularly from their leadership. And investment isn't always throwing money at a thing. It may be giving time. It may be giving attention. It may be showing up at the team on a regular basis to help them understand how the product they're building is going to be critical to the success of the business in future. Um, it can it can look like a lot of different things, and many of those um, involve leaders to the extent that they want to be involved. Um, and so, uh, and there are a lot of implications to getting the the team fluency to where you need it to be may involve learning new ways of being a manager, Mm. you know, moving out of the skills that you knew managing individual contributors and into the skills of managing at the team level and in the work system level. So, um, so there's lots of opportunity for everybody in the organization. It's just that the, the teams are the canaries in the coal mine. Right. They're the ones we have to focus on their how their behaviors are rolling out and what what outcomes they're creating and impacts they're creating. So that um, because that tells us about the whole system. That, yeah, that's really interesting. That also seems to yeah. tie in with things like HR and, you know, people people responsible for incentive models and compensation and evaluation shifting from individual contributors to to, right. to performing teams. Well, and that reminds me of one other thing. I'm going to say real quick, Vic, because I know we're running out of time. Uh, James Shore, my co-founder and, and the co-creator of the Agile Fluency Model, is also the author of a 
critical book in the Agile world called The Art of Agile Development. And he right now is working on a second edition of that book. And he is doing it in a very public way. If you go to jamesshore.com and click on books and click on second edition, you can begin to read um, the chapters as he is uh, rolling them out. And it has a much greater agile fluency model frame than it had before. And so he's describing things in a in even more detail than we have in the article and so on is gonna is gonna be showing up in that book. So that'll be a and, and you can also join a Google group if you want to do some review with them or you can just read. It's up to you. It's up to the individual. But uh, but that's another great resource around agile fluency that's available right now. And Colleen, you've gone through the uh, the program, haven't you? Did you want to say any words on that? Yeah, words? and I'll definitely kind of uh, end with um, something that just actually follows on what Chris was saying. So all that stuff Diana said was true, but one of the really important things that I think um, this program reinforces is that you know, we don't want to think of organizations as all wanting to head to maturity level five, right? This is very much based on even the first level of maturity that may suffice and mastering it is not easy, right? Um, um, and so so um, in, in Diana's and, and James's zones, the first zone is, is focus. Now let's just take this and ask ourselves, how focused are our organizations? And Diana, I was in a coaching circle and she said, oh, you know, surely, you know, where you're at right now, we must be closer to zone two. I said, no, Diana, we're striving for one. You know, because that art of just kind of learning the form and really focusing is something that I feel if you get there, that's good enough. So, Chris, to answer your question, I feel like for coaches, it's good to know that, that you don't it, you don't want to shoot for level five or level whatever, but that it's really about mastery to the right place. And I think that's critical for leadership to understand, too, because we don't all want to be fives. We don't all have to because our companies do different things. Well, and five gets really expensive. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> so there's some trade-offs there, right? Yeah. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining me today. Uh, had a really great conversation. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. All the show notes can be found on the website, agilecoffee.com slash episode 74. Diana, Lakshmi, Chris, and Colleen, thank you all very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And for everyone else, I just remind you to wherever you are, whatever you're doing, enjoy your coffee with friends.